Well, tonight's message is almost an addendum. If you were watching this message on Netflix, this is bonus material uh, to, to kind of see behind the scenes. I, I feel like we've really hit the highest theological points because the highest theology is always God-centered. It's not man-centered. And we've hit these in John 17 in our quest for objective evidence concerning our blessed assurance, the reasons that we should have Um, supreme confidence in our salvation from sin. And and I spent a long time this morning kind of reviewing where we've been. And we made a choice here in John 17 to, rather than going verse by verse, to take this apart topically. Because as you just, just in reading it over and over again, we just read it for our 14th time, you notice that Jesus repeats himself. And John 17 comes off very much like Proverbs, for example, where you see themes just revisited over and over again from different angles. But we've been looking at these objective pieces of evidence, reasons we have confidence in our salvation from sin. I recapped our whole series this morning and we looked at our blessed assurance because of the son's prayers. And I feel like we've really hit the pinnacle of theology that is very God-centered. But if you've been keeping track, we have done every single phrase in John 17 except one. One little one that almost slips by without notice. And I felt like we just had to explore it, if only even briefly. It's a little phrase that almost just goes by without anybody seeing it. just goes under the radar, but it has massive, huge implications. We've already seen the glory of the Son of God. We spent an entire message on this. We see in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, And we see the glory of the Son in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. But then the glory of Christ is mentioned again. And it's in connection with this little phrase that just almost escapes notice. And that is in verse 22. The last phrase that we have not dealt with yet. Here it is. The glory that you have given me Here's the little phrase, I have given to them. I have given to them. This is just a little two-word phrase in Greek. Uh, the main verb is given, and it is a, uh, in the form of a perfect active verb, meaning that it's, it's, an, it's an action in time which has continuing consequences, consequences which continue on um, indefinitely in most cases. And this is really exactly the feel we get in this Uh, grand thread of salvation that we are very familiar with from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 29, when it speaks of the glory of the saints. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, what's the end of the sentence? Glorified. What does that mean? That we are glorified. I I mean, you can do a quick Google search and find the words glory, God, and alone in the Bible dozens of times. And so we instinctively, if your theology is right, want to give all glory to God. But this says that we will be glorified. So, So what does it mean? Well, as I just mentioned, the idea of being glorified is primarily in the New Testament used almost exclusively of God. That should be expected But in the context of a redeemed person, of a Christian, the idea of being glorified, this word speaks of being clothed in splendor 
And specifically, it means to be caused to have greatness, to be caused to have splendid greatness. Now, obviously, in the context of the salvation work of God in our lives, being glorified is the final product, the result of redemption given to us through the precious cross of Christ. Um, We don't feel very glorified right now, and we understand that. There is definitely a future element Now, we've looked at 12 pieces of evidence that your salvation is indeed secure. I just want to add this one last piece of evidence, almost an afterthought, really, as that one little phrase in verse 22, that the glory of Christ has been given to us. And it really serves just to cap off the series. And I hope this will just bring hope. I hope it will bring joy. I hope it will bring a smile to your face that cannot be wiped off because of the absolute assurance that we can enjoy. So tonight, I just, I just want to have a very informal time, and I want to just talk to you about the glory that we have received. And, and what does this mean? What does it mean that we've received the glory that was given to the Son of God? Or maybe we could put it this way, what kind of glory might we expect? What kind of glory might we expect? And there's definitely a future element to this, but I think what we're going to see as we kind of bounce around the New Testament a little bit here. I think we're going to see that there's a significant overlap. There is, we might call it, a head start on the glory of Christ, which has already been imparted to us so much that even now we have in the Lord. At this very moment, you possess glory. And you might say, have you seen my calendar on Monday? It doesn't look very glorious. And so there's going to be overlap. So we'll start with looking at some ideas of glory that we have now and then move toward a more future glory So what kind of glory might we expect? We're just going to let verse 22 kind of propel us into some other passages, just informally, almost in Bible study method tonight. We want to understand what kind of glory the redeemed may expect from the mercy and the grace of God to save. So we'll just provide some labels here. The first type of glory, the first kind of glory we can expect, and we'll start very foundational, is a certain glory. A a certain glory. I think this is as good a place to start as any to make certain we possess the assurance of our salvation. It's been the whole point of our preaching time in John 17. Our assurance is so richly and abundantly promised. But it is a certain glory. This is not like other religious systems in which you are to work for a glory that you may or may not receive. This is what sets Christianity apart from every false religion. The Apostle Paul gave this tremendous promise in Colossians 3, verse 4. And don't try to turn to all these. We're going to hit a bunch of New Testament passages. But Colossians 3, 4, he gives this promise. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, I don't know about all of you, but in the circles I grew up in, the the church circles I grew up in, glory was another name for heaven. And you always said, I'm going to glory. In fact, we can show some Bible verses that use uh, the term that way. But in this context, when we're appearing with him in glory, it's not a place. It's a character that we are now fully glorified in Christ. We, We could legitimately translate this, then you also will appear with him with glory that you'll be glorified as well. We'll share in his glory. We'll, by the way, contribute to his glory by being trophies of his grace to save. The Apostle Paul told the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2.12 that they should, quote, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom 
and glory. Who calls you is a present participle, meaning who is calling you. It is a definite thing. It has happened. It continues to happen into his own kingdom and glory. The call of God on your life is to an ultimate arrival to his spiritual and physical kingdom that is continual. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2 verse 10 that God is bringing many sons, what? To glory. Listen, if you could lose your salvation, if that was possible, then it becomes theoretically possible for God to bring no sons, to bring no daughters to glory, for heaven to be utterly empty, for New Jerusalem to have streets that are barren and some sort of heavenly tumbleweed just going down the streets of gold. But that's not going to happen. The Apostle Peter encouraged the suffering saints of his day to endure for a while longer. And he promised them in 1 Peter 5.10. He said, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And there is no asterisk where you look at the bottom of the page that says, hopefully. That would be discouraging. But he says he will establish you. Paul explained to the Corinthian church that the gospel had been revealed for one purpose, and that is for the elect to be brought to glory. 1 Corinthians 2.12, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, that is the gospel, which God decreed before the ages, and here's the reason, for our glory. For our glory. We mentioned last week that if the Lord Jesus Christ saved you in order for you to simply be a slave in the kingdom of God forever, that would have been an ultimate act of grace but he didn't he saved you to become a son and a daughter and to receive and to share in the glory of christ that is a a mind-blowing thought by the way we've already alluded to this paul significantly he clarifies the duration of the glory of the saints how long does it go second timothy 210 i endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in christ jesus with Eternal glory. Eternal glory. So all of these passages point to a very clear and certain expectation that your salvation will culminate in ultimate glorification. And that is so, so encouraging to us because we not only want to be glorified, we're eager for those we know the best to be glorified as well. And doesn't that help us in so many ways to love one another when somebody may get under your skin or irritate you? If you will remind yourself If I saw this person the way they would be in glory, I might accidentally fall down in worship. And so we're encouraged by that. This is a certain glory. What other kind of glory can you expect? Well, you can expect, we'll label this one, a united glory. A united glory. And really, again, this is foundational. Really, the beginning and the foundation of our glory is in being united with Christ. This is alluded to in that one passing phrase here in Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Why is this important for a unite, being united with Christ? Well, you remember, and we, we've talked about this in a few previous messages, this really sends us back to that first reference to the glory of Christ in this prayer. In verse 1, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son. And we recall that specifically in that context, Going along with the idea of the hour has come. What hour? The hour for the cross. And so in this context, when Jesus is saying glorify the Son, he's referring to his glorification by virtue of his obedience to the cross. 
his obedience to die at his father's request. And so to be united with his glory, that has to be our starting point as well. Jesus himself gave this as a requirement to follow him. He said, very familiar to us, Mark eight thirty four, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his what? His cross and follow me. Now, I read a lot of articles about taking up your cross. And it's always used in the very metaphorical sense uh, in take up your cross. If you have a boss at work who is harsh, well, take up your cross. If your husband is a real jerk, well, take up your cross. And, and those are nice applications. But if we put ourselves in the shoes or rather the sandals of a first century person, take up your cross didn't mean any of those things. It only meant one thing. It meant take the instrument of your execution and walk to your death. That's all it meant. There was no metaphor associated with that. It meant go die. Walk to your death. In fact, Paul explained in very clear terms that we are united with Christ in his death. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so we're united with him. And that has to be there. In fact, even our, our, our symbol of water baptism, we are united with Christ. We go under the water. We go into death with him. And then we're also, of course, united with him in his resurrection as we come out. And so if we're united in glory with him, that means that glory had to start at the cross. And when you received Christ as your Savior, by default, he required that you receive him as Lord. The idea of receiving Christ as Savior but not Lord is ludicrous. You don't get part of Jesus. And by default, you said you will follow him at all costs. That as Romans 12 says, for example, that you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Your life is now bound up with Christ. Everything that happens to him happens to you. You've died with Christ. Your life is no longer your own. But of course, we have this glorious hope from Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also what? Live with him. And so those two go together. But this united glory in which you go with Christ to your death of self, it means that you continue going with Christ. Wherever Christ goes, that's where you go. And as Christ is glorified because of his obedience to the cross, so you are glorified because of his obedience to the cross and following him in death of self. So you can expect a united glory. You enjoy that now. We have a certain glory, a united glory. We could label another kind of glory. We'll call this one a joyful glory. A joyful glory. The Apostle Peter writes something so very encouraging. And by the way, this is a reflection of the encouragement that Christ gave during the farewell address there in John 14 through 16. He's simply commenting on what Jesus taught him. But Peter said in 1 Peter 1 verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with what? With glory. There is a joy in this. Peter's demonstrating what God's gift of faith has done for you. And and this is mind-boggling. You have never met Christ. You have never seen him. You have never heard his voice. You have never shaking his hand, you've never embraced him, you've never met him, and yet you love him above all, don't you? That's what faith has done. And even now, the Christian is able to rejoice with joy 
Uh, some have called this an abundance of redundance of joy. It's joy that is inexpressible. It, it can't really be defined hardly. I've had the opportunity here at Grace to preach on Christian joy a number of times. It's one of my favorite topics because it goes right along with Christian suffering. Those two are topics that are parallel to one another. And we always try to make the point that joy is not bound up in our circumstances, that true joy is in the knowledge of your salvation that elevates you above circumstances and and certainly elevates you above emotion. That being said, though, it is inaccurate to say that joy is not an emotion. That's inaccurate. I think it's more accurate to say that joy isn't dependent on emotion, but at some level, emotion gets involved. It means that, yes, you can be undergoing gravely difficult and painful circumstances where your emotions may be betraying you, and yet you're still hanging on and you're clinging to your Christian joy Because Christian joy is bound up in the sovereignty of God. It's bound up in the knowledge that all that's happening to you is because of God. It's him causing these things. He's in control of all things. And that all things in your life are being worked out by him for his glory and for our good. That's where our joy comes from. But shouldn't that thrill us? That's thrilling. It doesn't mean it necessarily always generates a feeling as proof of ultra spirituality. But pondering the truth that in reality nothing in this life can hurt me or touch me what what does that do for you well that gives you joy because you're looking ahead to your glory that is part of your joy did you notice something else or how else peter described this joy it's rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory and remember glory has major overtones of the future And so the joy we have in Christ now is also filled with those implications for our future glorification. I think the younger you are in the faith and the younger you are chronologically, the harder that is to to grasp and to imagine. But one of my favorite things to do is to talk to a Christian who has a terminal diagnosis and there is no hope. He is going to die. And when you see a real believer, I I have seen believers who are so sick they can hardly get up. And yet, when you talk to them about the fact that you may be weeks away from heaven, there's just this light that happens because glorification is this close and they can taste it. They can taste it. But right now, you're in a battle for your own joy, aren't you? I mean, your life circumstances battle with you. Your temptation battles with you. Failure battles with you. Heartache of every type battles with you. And they all want to be the filter by which we measure God. They all want to crowd out the joy inexpressible. And the fact that emotion is a very real part of our lives means that we're in that battle. And we wonder, am I joyful? Because right now I feel depressed. Yes, I'm thankful for my salvation, but I just don't feel good. I think one of the things I love about being a pastor is that I get to know you. And I get over a period of time, I, I wish I could get to know everybody at the same level. And it's always my hope and dream but many of you I've gotten to know at a, at a deep level. And I know some of you that are tender, especially tender. Some of you just hurt easily. It feels as if one hurt is nearly healed and, and another blow happens. I've had more than one of you with, with, with big old tears say, I, I feel like I just leap from one hurt to another and that that's my life. 
And I understand that. Some of you are, are built that way. Others of you seem to have no emotion and you say, well, joy is easy. And okay, you know, the rest of us hate you for that. But, uh, <laughs> but for, the, for, for the normal person who's tender and we, and we hurt, don't you ever just feel like your life is defined by trying to win over negative emotion and depression and anxiety and whatever else is coming at you? And you, you're just feeling like, look, maybe the last week of my life I'll have this great victory and we'll, we'll end on an up. But have you stopped to consider something? That battle is going to come to an end. There will be a day when victory is achieved in reality at your ultimate glorification, only joy will reign. Never, ever again will there be a fight for peace. There won't be a battle for trust. There won't be a war for contentment. There will be a day when you never have to pray for the peace of God because you will own it all the time. Never again will an unkind word trigger a spiral of emotional darkness. Never again will the sins of others deflect the light of joy Never again will your own sin deflate your joy in the Lord. And so for all of you precious saints who hurt so easily, take heart. There will be a day when that's done, when it's over. You can expect a certain glory, united glory, a joyful glory. Related to a joyful glory, another one we could label is a perfected glory. A perfected glory. Do you ever wake up and just say, just once, just for one day, I'd like to get through a day free of my sin nature, free of my temptations to lust, free of my temptation to be greedy, to be anxious, to be selfish, to misuse my tongue, to look down on others. Just today, Lord, could I be like Christ for once. Now, you have been freed from the bondage to sin in that the Holy Spirit helps you in your weakness You're not enslaved to sin as your master, but we do contend with our flesh. I love the fact that the great Apostle Paul related to us in this way. We relate to Paul when he complained in Romans 7, beginning in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Have you ever been in a group of people and you hear some horribly rude words and you realize, oh, those just came out of my mouth? What, why did I say that? And you're, you're trying to get them back and you can't and they're out there and then now in today's age, they're on Twitter after that. And you just shake your head and you go, why? I know better. But in the very next chapter, The Apostle Paul speaks of a future day when creation itself will be freed from its bondage to a fallen system bound by sin and decay and death and darkness and creation will obtain the ultimate freedom. Listen to this ultimate freedom. Romans 8, 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom. Here's the standard, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The coming glorious perfection and sinlessness of the children of God is what creation looks to and hopes for, as it were. It's already happening now. It is already happening. You, you may not see it. You, you know how when you have your own children, you don't see them growing, but people who don't see them as often say, whoa, you, your kids have shot up here. It is happening through the word of God, through your trials, through suffering. The Lord is sanctifying you now. He is glorifying you now. 
2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit of God is tasked by God the Father and God the Son with making sure you are conformed to the image of the Son. And He does it through a variety of creative means, often including suffering. And He is doing that in your life. Peter gave us assurance of our future perfection while simultaneously encouraging us to godliness right now. He said in 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. Now what does this mean? You've been called to the glory and excellence of Christ. Excellence speaks of virtue of character. You've been called to be like Christ, that your future is to have the very virtues of the character of Christ. Now listen, I I don't know about you, but I think it's thrilling to think about the person to your right and to your left ultimately having the excellence of Christ. And we think about that, but you'll have that character as well. Hopefully, you are growing in Christ If you're not growing over the course of decades, then you're probably not in Christ. But you are being conformed and transformed and there will be a day when it's completed. I thought about this the other day. I thought about what will those first sinless moments feel like? I I, I wonder if we even can grasp that. Maybe when you wake up in the morning, you can say, hey, I haven't sinned yet. But then there's pride, and so now you've sinned. And so you're already done. What will those first sinless moments feel like when temptation has no power? When you're not fighting a battle against yourself? When sin has cast its final shadow over your life? What will breathing the sinless air of your own glory, the glory given to us, what will that be like? But how can you have a perfected glory? How do you have that? Well, we could give another label. We'll call this one a partaking glory. A partaking glory. In the very next verse in Second Peter, Peter says something that if it wasn't clearly here in Scripture, you might almost think if somebody just said this and didn't quote the Bible, they would, you would think they were being blasphemous. You would think they were heretics. And yet here it is. In 2 Peter 1.4, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Listen to this. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Whoa. I am a partaker of the divine nature of God. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter's saying that you've escaped the corruption of the world. What does that mean? It means that sin can never so corrupt you that you will turn from Christ. It can't happen. And that your salvation will always remain. And how have we done this? How have we escaped the corruption of the world? Well, more than one theologian called this phrase nothing short of shocking that we are partakers of the divine nature. I read an article by one commentator or a little, little side part of an article and he talked about early in his Christian life, somebody told him, you're part of the divine nature. And he thought, that's crazy. That, that doesn't make sense. And he quoted to him from 2 Peter 1.4. And it was jaw-dropping. And it's what caused him to eventually go into ministry because he wanted to understand that better. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we're somehow becoming little gods. We're not Mormons. We're not going down that road. Or that we're attaining to godlike status. It simply means that we are becoming less and less and less like the character of the world and more and more and more like the character of God. That is your trajectory. We have an ethical nature that's like God's. Or to put it in God's own words, God promised prophetically in his coming new covenant that he would write his law on our hearts. What does that mean? It means you know what is right because your character is the divine nature. You have partaken of the divine nature. God's desires now become your desires. God's ethic becomes your ethic. This is remarkable. This is incredible. It is a partaking glory. Now, all of these that we've listed so far, a certain glory, united glory, joyful glory, perfected glory, partaking glory, they have a definite overlap between our present reality and our future reality. But we can highlight a few more types or kinds of glory that are specifically now associated with our eschatological future, with our coming kingdom age. So let's do another one. One of our favorites, a physical glory. This is a a physical glory. I I feel like here at Grace, you're familiar with the concept of our resurrection bodies. We've spoken of this many times. It's one of my favorite topics. But I'm really shocked at how devalued and how de-emphasized physical restoration of God's creation is, including the saints. It it seems to be devalued. And really, this goes all the way back to a, a faulty philosophical underpinning rooted ultimately in Plato and in Aristotle, in other ancient Greek philosophers, that these ideas have made their way into Christian thinking, that somehow the physical is inherently bad and the invisible is preferred and inherently good. But how did God create the universe? Did he create a bunch of spirit beings to float around invisibly on top of an invisible world and then sin came and said, well, I guess I better make it to where everybody can see each other now. No, he made a physical creation with physical human beings to rule the earth according to his mandate. Mankind made as a physical being with an eternal soul, reflective of God's own. And so, of course, we're very familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 51, when Paul very excitedly says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Jesus himself promised that he would be the catalyst for this. John 6.39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. You will be raised from the dead. By Jesus Christ. And there is, this is at the core of the idea of redemption. To return something to its former state. It's a, I think it's a, a terrible theological mistake to downplay the importance of the physical. Because God sure doesn't. God made us in this way and he intends to restore every believer to the full glory that was intended for you in a glorified body. One in which you, you serve the Lord. A body like Christ's resurrected body which, with which he could travel instantly from one place to another and yet also enjoyed walking. A body with which he had no need of food and yet enjoyed eating and drinking. 
you will reflect the glory of Christ in that your new body will never be sick, never wear out, never need surgery or medicine. Do you realize if you just if we took a quick poll, how many of you in this room and in this church, you make your living because of the decaying bodies of mankind? No more dentists, no more doctors, no more chiropractors, none of that. They're all out of business. They're gardeners now. And that's fabulous. We absolutely must not minimize the theological importance of the physical body. Did you know that this is how God first communed with humanity? And we can't, we can't picture this because we've only known faith. We've never known sight. But when Adam first opened his eyes, do you really think he was all alone? Absolutely not. In fact, referencing creation as a model for our salvation the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and, and this word picture is significant. He says that God has shown in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a reference to his physical presence. After sinning, Adam and Eve heard God, Genesis 3, 8, walking in the garden. Now, uh, many commentators would say, well, they just heard the spiritual presence of God. Well, if they heard the spiritual presence of God, then why did they hide? Why did they hide? They hid because they knew there was someone to hide from. When God covered their nakedness because of sin, Genesis three twenty one, the Lord God made for Adam... And for his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. Adam and Eve witnessed the death of animals and God himself making garments of skin. They didn't just appear. God in, in physical form was before them slaying animals. And then they're cast out of the garden. And now God could only be accessed by faith, not by sight. That's what was the, that was the tragedy of losing the Garden of Eden because now God could not be seen. He could only be believed in. And of course, God came to earth in the form of a man, the man Jesus Christ. And in our new bodies, we will commune with him in his resurrected body for all time. Listen, the marriage supper of the Lamb is a real supper the promised new Jerusalem is a real city. The promised new earth will have real mountains to climb, real flowers to be enjoyed, real rivers to see. And all of this is to be enjoyed as God first intended in a body which will never decay the very best and original version of you. Uh, this week, our family was driving and we passed a sign at a local high school and it said something like, be your best you, which doesn't mean anything actually. Unless you're a Christian, you know how to be your best you? Come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and fully expect that he will resurrect you from the dead and you can go look in the mirror and say, that's my best me, right there. You can expect a physical glory. What else can you expect? You can expect an intellectual glory. An intellectual glory. What does sin do to your mind? It dims the mind to spiritual truth. It dims the mind to spiritual truth. You've... We've all seen this in very, very intelligent unbelievers when they begin to try to speak on spiritual things sound idiotic to us because they can't grasp spiritual truth. Psalm 14, beginning in verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. 
There is none who does good, not even one. Significantly, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But in Christ, our minds are opened first unto salvation to recognize our own sin, our need for repentance and faith. Also to recognize Christ as the way, the truth and the life. And even now in Christ, we're called to a transformation of our minds to continue our intellectual thoughts of God and of the world and of ourselves. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And this, of course, only happens one way, and that is through the truth of the word of God. We are called to pursue proper thinking. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 8, think on these things. Ephesians 4, 23, we're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. 1 Peter 1.14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Ephesians 5.10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. But beyond what's happening in our intellectual transformation now, we have a tremendous future promise. And here it is. 1 Corinthians 13.12, for now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I shall know fully. Now, this isn't a claim to future omniscient knowledge on the level of God, but it is a claim to the opening of the mind to spiritual truth such that all things that God would have you to grasp are understandable. All things that he explains to you, you will grasp. And our capacity to continue learning of God will be perfected in glory I think Psalm 1611 has some significant implications about our learning. You made known to me, you make known to me rather the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. They go on and on, meaning the pleasures are are directed toward the character of God. At your right hand is kind of a way of saying connected to God. And so there's an implication here of learning that God is infinite. Have you ever tried to explain something very basic about God to an unbeliever and and they just scratch their heads and say, that that doesn't make sense. And you think, you know, the five-year-olds at Grace Bible Church grasp this. Because are there saved five-year-olds at Grace? I think there probably are. We we don't know who they are because they still act like little reprobates and so it's hard to tell. But their fruit will emerge. But we continue to learn, continue to grow. One of the things that we did in our home especially when the kids were little, is we found out that Christmas Day can be emotional overload, right? When you, when you simply bulldoze a stack of gifts toward all your kids, what, what do they do? You know, they rip through one and throw it aside and you go, I paid 75 bucks for that. And they just threw it behind the couch. And so we started staggering them. This was Sylvia's brilliant idea. We, we would open uh, one gift on Christmas Eve and another gift or two on Christmas morning then maybe another one later that night and maybe even save one for the next day so that they weren't overloaded. According to Psalm 16, verse 11, every day is a new gift that we unwrap as to another glorious characteristic of God and you will understand it, you will grasp it, you will be in awe of it. That will be the great thing about being in heaven as we continue to learn about an infinite God. 
Some of you probably memorized uh, all the colors in the rainbow. I didn't, but I know there's just a few of them. That's the rainbow you can see and that we know about. What about the other billion colors that God has not revealed to you because you don't have the capacity to see it? You can read a theology which has lists of the attributes of God and those lists often, uh, often quote one another, but ultimately a theology has a front cover and a back cover and it comes to an end. But your ability to grasp who God is will now become infinite in that he can continue turning the pages about himself and never again will there be a back cover. What kind of glory can you expect? Let's throw this one in, just for fun. An abundant glory, an abundant glory. I had a little kid ask me this just a few weeks ago. He said, are we gonna have money in heaven? That's a reasonable question. Because if you know anything about economics, you know that money is, it comes in handy down here, right? I mean, we need it to pay rent. We need it to buy food. And so if you've ever wondered what sort of economic system will exist on New Earth or if there'll even be one, this little piece of information might be interesting to us. Zechariah 14 says this will happen in the intermediate kingdom, what Revelation 20 calls the thousand-year kingdom. But this is only reflective of the greater truth of something happening on New Earth and the New Jerusalem in particular, uh, that there will be uh, this idea of something being brought to Jerusalem. It'll happen in the, in the intermediate kingdom, but in the New Earth, New Jerusalem, now it's permanent. And here's what it is. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. By the way, it doesn't say there is no sun or moon, it just says it doesn't need it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. Okay, stop right there. We're talking about New Jerusalem, one city on New Earth. And it says, by the light of New Jerusalem, the nations will walk. What does that mean? It means that representatives from or entire nations will be coming to New Jerusalem. Why? And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. What does it mean that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into New Jerusalem? Well, it speaks of goods, of treasures. That which they may lovingly and excitedly offer to the king of kings, much like the queen of Sheba offered her abundance and extravagance to Solomon in appreciation of his wealth and his power and his wisdom. In fact, this idea is further confirmed in the next verses. Revelation 21, beginning of verse 25, and its gates, that is New Jerusalem, will never be shut by day, nor and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. This has the idea of a parade that never stops from the nations all over the world, bringing in the glory and the honor of the nations. What is honor? Well, this is exactly the same word in Greek used to tell the church in 1 Timothy 5 to give the preaching pastors of the church double honor. What does that mean? Money, goods, treasure. And so all of the things that represent the glory of the nations will be brought in. Meaning that there's a lot of stuff. That there's an abundance on earth. In fact, just speaking of the intermediate kingdom, the kingdom of Christ on earth prior to the recreation of the new heavens and new earth, Listen to this amazing description of what a Christ-ruled world is like from Micah chapter 4. 
Beginning in verse 1, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. So just taking Scripture at face value, uh, the, the changes, the topography that changes during and possibly right after the Great Tribulation means that uh, Jerusalem now is the highest place on earth. That's what this text says. There's no reason to doubt that. It is entirely possible. Is it possible for something that used to be low to go high? Yes, see also Hawaii. That's what happens. But it continues, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he, that is, the God of Jacob, may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples. And shall decide disputes for, far, for strong nations far away. Remember, in the intermediate kingdom, sin is still in existence, but it is suppressed and it is judged and it is controlled by the Savior. He will judge between many peoples. And then he'll say, it says they'll beat their swords into plowshares, their, sp- their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore because there's perfect security But here's what you can expect. And you say, well, that's great. That's the global situation. That's the news. What about me? But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Now, let me stop right there. You go back to the Jews right after the Exodus. And they're wandering around. And everything that they own has to be carried on their back maybe on a camel or two. Everything they own. And if you asked a Jewish man, and he's got his wife and little kids and a bunch of lambs and goats and things behind him, if you asked him, what is your dream? What do you want on this earth? What, what would be a sign of God's blessing? You know what he would say? He would say, I want a vineyard and I want a tree that would shade me. You ever sat under a fig tree? The leaves are like the size of maps. I used to have a fig tree in our backyard when I was a little kid. My brother and I, every summer, we would sit under it in the shade. Grew up in southern Arizona. It's super hot. Go in there, it's like 75 degrees under that thing. And we'd make ourselves sick just eating all the figs off the tree. And they were free. The idea of every man sitting under his vine. By the way, you've seen grapevines that are about this high. Uh, a grapevine in the millennial kingdom apparently will be big enough to sit under its shade and under his fig tree and listen to this, and no one shall make them afraid. You tell that to a Jew today, how would you like to live in a day when you no longer have to be afraid? For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. What is this a picture of? This is a picture of peace. This is a picture of abundance. Every one of you, at one time or another, has had some sort of money worry. How am I going to pay this bill? How am I going to do this? That will come to an end. No more of that. What other kind of glory can you expect? We'll list one or two more. We'll call this one a working glory. A working glory. I think one of the misconceptions that Christians have about heaven, because they just don't read about heaven, is that, well, isn't it going to be kind of boring? Aren't we going to be just like singing a hymn? For eternity? No, not at all. God doesn't make us to sit around doing nothing. 
right now, and our future with God will be no different at all. Revelation 7 describes those who are saved in the coming great tribulation and what they are doing once they've gone to heaven. Revelation 7.15 says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Now, of course, Revelation 20 and 22 both speak of the saints reigning with Christ. It means we'll be working, we'll be doing, we'll have jobs, we'll have tasks. So on a side note, I, I love ecclesiology. I love thinking about the church. It's very interesting to me professing Christians who choose not to serve the Lord in this life, and yet that's all we're going to be doing in the life to come. It makes me wonder if it's even possible to be a non-serving Christian. Does that even exist? Because we're made to serve God. So you will have a working glory. So what kind of glory can you expect? A certain glory, united glory, joyful glory, perfected glory, partaking glory, a physical glory, intellectual glory, an abundant glory, a working glory, I'll do one more, number 10 if you're counting, a mutual glory, a mutual glory. And this one is just kind of for fun. Remember we said at the beginning of our time that to be glorified means to be caused to have splendid greatness, to be caused to have greatness. What is one of the causes of your coming splendid greatness? Well, the Apostle Paul boasted of his He told his beloved Thessalonian church, the founders of which he had personally led to Christ. He said in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Now, just stop right there for a minute. This is an interesting picture. This is Paul picturing himself standing before the Lord and bragging about something. That makes me tremble in my boots just to think about that. Oh, we would never do that. But Paul says he's going to. He's going to boast. He's going to brag. He's going to point to something to say, this is my glory. What is it? He says, is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. You are that which has made me great. And so we serve as a way to share our mutual glory The little ones that you taught in Sunday school, they are your crown of boasting before the Lord. Moms, those little ones that you care for at home and you bless them and you pray for them and you lead them to Christ, they will be your crown of boasting before the Lord. The person who led you to faith in Christ, you will be his or her crown of boasting. There will be somebody pointing to you saying, I boast in this person. The young lady that you've discipled and that you've ministered to and led to greater maturity, she's your glory in boasting. The young man that you've discipled, that you've prayed with, that you've led into greater maturity, he is your glory in boasting. We are each other's mutual glory. What a wonderful heritage to share amongst each other. And you've heard the phrase, the mutual admiration society. That really will be, when we stand before the Lord, what, what our relationship with one another is. I can glory in you. You can glory in me. We glory in one another. Well, I only have one point for this message. I guess I should tell you what it is before we're done. Here's the point. If the Bible has promised that you can expect a certain glory, 
a united glory, a joyful glory, a perfected glory, a partaking glory, a physical glory, an intellectual glory, an abundant glory, a working glory, a mutual glory. Doesn't that help you finally give up the fears of losing your salvation? I hope it does. You're going to be glorified whether you're certain of it or not. I I would rather be certain of it. I I don't want to get to heaven and go, oh, wow, this is even cooler than I thought it might be. That's going to happen anyway, but you may as well enjoy being certain. May as well enjoy that certainty. Jesus said, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. It is yours. You possess it. You have it right now. Well, I plan there's only really one way you can end a series on assurance of salvation. There's only one text you can read. Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be assured. Take that blessed assurance all the way home. Amen? Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for the many reasons we found in John 17 over the past seven weeks. Thirteen reasons we found. Certainly it's an infinite word. We could continue digging and and never stop. But we thank you for all these objective pieces of evidence, Lord, of the assurance of our salvation. And I would pray for a man or a woman here or listening to this message who believes themselves to be saved and sees the fruit of salvation and yet still struggles with assurance. I pray that you would give them confidence. I pray that you would remind them that Jesus said that His sheep know Him and they hear His voice. And we have heard Your voice in the Word of God. We have heard the great assurance and confidence that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has given us in His great high priestly prayer. I am stunned that in the Bible I can read that Jesus prayed for me. And I give you thanks for that. I'm stunned when I read in the Bible that the Holy Spirit has sealed us unto salvation. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would enjoy the glory that is coming to us, both in the ways we possess it now and the ways we will possess it in the future, and that we would enjoy this life because we know with certainty, without a doubt, that our salvation will be completed, that you will finish the work that you began in us and that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is in his name we pray and give thanks. Amen.